This Scientific American podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, your source for audiobooks and more. Audible.com features more than 100,000 titles, including science books like Bad Pharma, How Drug Companies Mislead Doctors and Harm Patients by Ben Goldacre, and new sci-fi like Extinction by Mark Albert. Right now, Audible.com is offering a free audiobook and a one-month trial membership to the Scientific American audience. For details, go to audible.com slash Siam, S-C-I-A-M. Welcome to the Scientific American Podcast, Science Talk, posted on February 24th, 2013. I'm Steve Mursky. I was in a cab um, going from this airport in the middle of Indiana to a physics conference, and the cabbie said, where are you going? A physics conference. And he says, I know one thing about physics. The king of physics is Isaac Newton. <laughs> and that's Matthew Stanley. He's an astronomer and a professor of the history of science at NYU. And he was part of a panel talking about Isaac Newton after a performance of a new play called Isaac's Eye here in New York City on February 20th. The play, written by Lucas Nath, runs through March 10th at the Ensemble Studio Theater with support from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. You can follow the panel discussion without seeing the play, but it's helpful to know these elements of the show. Newton really did stick a needle in his tear duct, possibly to try to learn more about light by seeing how altering the shape of his eye would change his perception. Newton and Robert Hooke were real-life rivals who have a fictitious encounter in the play. Hooke kept an incredibly detailed diary of his activities, and Newton may have had a youthful romantic interest in one Catherine Storer, who is another character in the show. The panel also features the playwright Lucas Nath, Matthew Jones, a science historian at Columbia University, and Gabrielle Quillich, a physicist at Yeshiva University and moderator of the panel. First of all, let me introduce the wonderful people who are going to enlighten us, we hope, or we're going to have a good time chatting. Let's start from Lucas, Lucas Nate, the author of the play. Here to my right, Matthew Jones from Columbia University, a historian from the history department, historian who knows a lot about this period, thought and written a lot about this period. And then to his right, Matt Stanley from NYU Gallatin. And uh, Matt, I don't know how also, you describe you. He's a historian, philosopher of science all over the map, and a thinker on issues of science and religion who are very relevant to this play as well. So perhaps that's something we can explore. And so let's start, and then eventually we'll hope we'll have a chance to open it to, to the audience. So, Lucas, I will ask you the first question that is a question that in one shape or the other I have been asking you for the last couple of years since we started this. Why Newton? So, when I asked the question, I said, why, Lucas, why? (laughs) Why Newton? I know, and he always asks uh, exasperatedly, (laughs) um, which is interesting. Uh, I was, I mean, I, I first got the idea, idea to write the play when I was uh, listening to a podcast of the Leonard Lopate show on my walk home. Um, he was interviewing George Johnson, who wrote a book called The Ten Most Beautiful Experiments. And uh, in passing, he mentioned this experiment where Newton placed a needle in his eye 
And uh, on my walk home, I just started imagining what that would look like on stage. I thought that that would make for an interesting stage action to put a needle in the eye. And then I think, okay, yeah, and you're incapacitated while you've got a needle in your eye. And that seems to be a bad position to be in. Um, but then uh, I mean, that doesn't really make for a play. So uh, I, I tried to figure out, well, what would compel this person to put a needle in his eye? And so I started looking for um, potent conflicts in Newton's career. And one of the ones that stood out to me was between Newton and Robert Hooke. Uh, it seemed that the, 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 the two had several points of contention in their beliefs, but also they seem like very uh, disparate personalities where Hook is kind of sleeping around a lot and studying a lot of different subjects. Newton is more uh, monastic in his uh, approach to science and also the, the outside world. So that's sort of the, a rough version of the origin story. Mm-hmm. Well, Matthew, perhaps you can tell us, you see, we all know Newton and the image we learned in kindergarten is always of an apple falling and Newton, and we always say that we try to make him a little nicer than he really is, and so that was a nice legend. So tell us something about the real Newton, and how much of the real Newton do you see here? Um, Well, you get a definite flavor of the real Newton. I mean, when he was uh, it, when he was battling, he was battling indeed. Uh, the dispute over who invented the calculus is a big and nasty dispute in Picard because Newton organized the paper such that we could follow at his victory and, and organized a publishing campaign against his bitter enemy, Leibniz, who had no power, actually, at the, at the time. So we get a, a sense of that. But also, I think one thing that we really get a sense of is the extent to which he was deeply concerned with the problems of, of the human being in coming to know things. And that that was very much a problem that was a, a problem of our bodies as well as our mind. And uh, it, so I think Lucas was right to focus in on this, this moment in which uh, the evidence suggests he actually really did constantly stick this book, what he called a bodkin in his eye. Because he wanted to know not just something about theories of light, but also something fundamentally about how fragile we are as sensing and thinking beings. Um, and so it's just a fundamental thing for him, but it's a fundamental thing indeed for the entire period he's operating in. And his answers are, um, are at once quite askew to those of his contemporaries and also transformative in the development of science. So we capture a lot of that. And, uh, and when I, one of the things I like a lot about the play is that the way in which the sort of emotional content of his character is, is is also captured in the the rather innovative approach that he takes mm-hmm. to uh, a new kind of what he called natural what they called natural philosophy. Yeah. One of the things I always liked about the needle experiment was that it's not an experiment all by itself, but it sort of demonstrates an important part of his character that Newton sort of sat down one day and said, "Now I'm going to figure out colors." 
And he said, where are all the different places where you might study colors? So, well, we see it in glass, and we see it in water, and we need to look at how we can mix different chemicals together. And, you know, sometimes when you stare at the sun, you see some colors, right? So I'll stare at the sun for a while. And he does this long, as we were just talking about, he does this long enough that he incapacitates himself and has to lay out for a few days. And he discovers at some point that when you press on your eye, everybody can do this experiment without hurting themselves. If you press on your eye a little bit, you do see these funny little rings. He says, I should check that out too. So this is just one little part of this entire project, forgetting everything about colors. And then once he's experienced them all, then you can figure out what it really means, the truth behind it. Perhaps we can mention what is behind the royal, which is plays an important role here. What is the royal society? What is the restoration England? Why the society became the royal society around that time? Because they had to somehow make it up to the king and how dangerous it was doing or not doing or believing or not believing certain things around that time, around the 1660s. Whichever of you want to tackle that. Well, the Restoration in England, I think, is an extremely interesting time because, in some sense, everything is in flux, right? Politics, religion, science, anything that someone thought was true about the world, you could find someone else who could give you a completely cogent reason why that was no longer true. And the stakes of this were very high. Right? The stakes were whether or not you would cut the king's head off or who was going to be ruling England or whether or not you should burn Quakers at the stake. Right? These are very serious issues. And in an important sense, these questions do come down to the sort of questions that we see at play in the, um, in the play here, is questions of how we can be sure about what we know and what kind of weight of truth can we put behind these things that we're quite sure are true. So even something as simple as, I did this experiment, is an extremely complicated thing to say at this time. So an experiment is not a self-evident kind of truth in Restoration England. Uh, even both, as we saw here, both Hooke and Newton, both committed experimenters, disagree profoundly about whether or not um, Newton correctly reported the experiments he had done. Uh, and whether or not how you wrote the story changed the sort of conclusion that you could draw, right? the, the kind of truth you could say about nature. So I find that this makes this an extremely interesting time um, in which people are so unsure about the foundations of belief that they constantly have to articulate them too. So it's very nice for us as historians that people are constantly writing down why they think things are true. Yeah, and things were... Things seemed so pathological that uh, one moment in the play that I think really captures something crucial is when uh, Hook says to Newton that you can't handle criticism. And one of the things the Royal Society did was itself an experiment about how to converse without coming to blows, without kill, I mean, literally getting to a stake in which you could have a conversation in which you disagreed and that was okay. And the creation of a new science was very much a debate about how far you could go. Could you have any claims about what nature really is like, or are you simply going to have a group of people saying, look, I saw this? Mm -hmm. um, and Newton was such a challenge, actually, to the Royal Society because he was this profound individualist in his approach, both in his mathematical work, but also in the, the, this memorable paper that you dramatize, in which he does say... I did this in a way 
that is violates all of the new community norms. It seemed like a return to the bad past, the kind of thing that caused the killing of kings, the killing of Protestants, the killing of Quakers. And yet, it's in some sense, the, it's the future for the Royal Society. So it really is, it's, it's a moment of flux in which the stakes are very high, but it's one in which fundamentally people didn't know how to disagree. And that's a key moment um, in the development of what we think of a science. One thing, two questions perhaps that are in some sense the same question. So one is, um, can you try to convey how iconoclastic it was go to the Royal Society and say that light was particles in a time where it seems like the, the, the general belief among the people who actually had some power there was the opposite. And the other was uh, perhaps reflecting what the Royal Society was in, in the following sense. It's difficult sometimes to imagine. Uh, Newton was born in the week that Galileo died, who is the father of my profession, the father of physics. And Galileo is thought of the father of physics because he had this crazy idea that instead of just thinking about the world like the previous philosophers, actually one can interrogate nature by doing an experiment. And that was revolutionary. We are here a couple of generations later and there is a society whose apparent main purpose is to sit down, have cook, do an experiment in front of everybody and everybody discussing what it is. So that in 40 years, science is obviously a completely different enterprise. That that's the main essence, well, from what I read, I am not a historian of the period, obviously, of what the Royal Society is. How transcendent is that change and the, the, the appearance of the Royal Society in that process? Well, on your first question, just to build on what Matt had just said, um, it's not so much that it was controversial that Newton claimed light was a particle per se. Rather, what was controversial was to go to the Royal Society and say, I believe this. Right? That's what, in some sense, the Royal Society is designed not to do. Right? It's a society where people get together and look at stuff and no one says what they believe. Because <laughs> strongly saying what you believe invites someone else to disagree with you and then the swords come out. And this is really very much the way they, they thought about this problem. So in an important sense, the controversial issue was not the actual theoretical claim so much as Newton's willingness to say, this is a truth about nature that I have divined. There's a very important sense. It breaks the rules that they had set. Yeah, and, and, in some, and one of the funny things about the wave versus particle thing is Newton himself only slowly came to realize the full radical quality of what he had produced because he created a, a new kind of mathematical, what he called mathematical natural philosophy, in which it was okay not to opine about what, in fact, nature truly was, but it was good enough to be able to give mathematical laws that explained it, that you could know with exactitude. And what he did was to sort of square the circle, because on the one hand, the Royal Society said, let's all go look at facts and not generalize. And on the other hand, there was this danger of sort of dogmatic hypotheses of what the entire world was like, either particles or waves. And what Newton did was to do something extremely radical and say, look, we're not going to know the, the fundamental nature, but we sure damn well can know with exact precision, the mathematical principles that God has created on earth. 
And that is one of the results of the optical. So that was a profound challenge, more so even than the wave versus particle duality. Um, uh, so it, it and, and again, it took, it, it was hard to realize how transformative that moment was in rethinking what the bounds of science could be and what the aspirations of science could be. Um, and it changed the royal society from a society of gentlemen observing sort of nice experiments. And if you, if, if you want to amuse yourself for an hour, look at the first few issues of their journal, The Philosophical Transaction, filled with deadly serious experiments and a whole lot of reports of various sort of flaky, gentlemanly figures who sent in all kinds of, well, just observations. Like two-headed cows, right. a rock fell from the sky last week. Yeah, Leibniz, the great mathematician, publishes an article about a sheep he saw that had a, a head that looked, I mean, a head that looked like a giant wig. You know, this was an article one could publish in the Philosophical Transactions, but it's also the Philosophical Transactions in 1674 publishes Newton's utterly transformative paper, um, which then causes a fight and, uh, uh, you know, he withdraws completely from public life. Until in this weird dance with Hook, Hook gets him to come out. I mean, his, the, the relationship there is a deeply strange one. Um, that is one of the things I love about the early Royal Society. Is, as you say, there are these experiments that now we look back on as sort of, you know, the first glimmerings of atomic truth or whatnot, and then next to snakes with feet. And <laughs> the Royal Society did not particularly distinguish between these in terms of philosophical value, right? These are all things that gentlemen should be interested in. Yeah, and Newton had different views on that. The Newton had different <laughs> views on that. <laughs> uh, do you want to say something about the role that optics played in Newton? After all, we remember Newton for his gravitation theory, and that's what made him famous, and his Principia, which we claim is the starting book of science, or one of them. It's mostly about the gravitation. But optics played a very big role in Newton's life, from that age till the end when he was writing his book. So... What is the relationship between all the Newton ever, so to speak, and, and optics, which is what seeing, which is what display is all about? Um, well, it's on, on the one hand, it's sort of one of the fundamental places for understanding both what nature is like and our reactions to it. So when Newton adopts it, He's arguing against what had become the new, sexy, exciting science of the time, which is the science of Descartes. It's hard to imagine this. This was exciting, but it was entirely hypothetical, and Descartes even said it was a beautiful story about the world that was plausible, and it had something to tell you about the world. You didn't need to be fearful of certain things. And it was even useful, because you could make better glasses. That was the domain that Newton, as an undergraduate, not paying attention to the boring Aristotelian textbooks, but reading new, sexy, big Cartesian textbooks, um, was embarked upon. And he seizes both of those things and disagrees completely with the Cartesians. So it's, a, it's, a, it, 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 it's, it's both a, a way of really re-understanding the world in this fundamental way and creating new tools, but also re-understanding us as perceiving beings. Um, the optics of has you know there's even a bigger thing that given Newton's theological uh, orientation to understand the laws of optics was to very fundamentally understand something about the divine making 
and light had long been associated with divine agency as something that was other to this world. And that is unquestionably something he's deeply, one of the reasons he's so deeply interested in it and it reflects um, a lot of the work that he does. And it's in the optics, in fact, that he's most speculative. So late, late in life, he publishes many editions of a book of optics available in a reprint by Dover with an introduction by Einstein. And at the end of the book, he has a long series of queries where the true beliefs of Newton are allowed to sort of uh, to, 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 to say their name. Bizarre things about fermentation and other sorts of stuff. These set an entire research program for a generation of English scientists in the 18th century. So it's it's utterly central to what he does at all sorts of all sorts of levels. Yeah, that's right. And one of the interesting things I I find about Newton and optics that's reflected nicely in the structure of the play is that is that it brackets his whole life. Right. It's sort of one of the it's one of the first things that Newton can get serious traction on as a young man. Um, and he can, he can show that he can do it better than the Cartesians, so that's appealing. Um, it's a time when glass technology is advancing rapidly, so he has new sorts of tools. It's amenable to the kind of mathematical investigation, and then also connects to these transcendent issues. So it's a perfect storm for the young Newton to tackle the particular issues he's interested in. And then when he's older, it's also his victory lap. Right. Yeah. He writes the optics once he's president of the Royal Society, and, and they say the true new, he can finally say what he really thinks about light and God and matter and gravity and living inside God's brain and fermentation, all these things that he can only say at the end. So in that sense, I like, because you get the full arc of the experience of Newton. From. Yeah, and when someone late in the 18th century, like Goethe, wants to attack Newton, well, he takes on light and that be, it becomes so iconic and so intelligible as opposed to the rather abstract physics, which mm -hmm. is praised everywhere and understood almost nowhere, especially on his own terms. And light has been one of the areas of physics that attracted many people from other areas. Experimental psychology started in okay. some sense in the 19th century, people trying to understand perception of light. So was an area from physics that attracted many people. I have a question for you, Lucas, but perhaps everybody can jump in, which is, Newton is a strange character. As a human being, we believe, and historians might disagree, he died a virgin, he never had any close uh, friends or relationship, very close, and there are all sorts of speculations that you might refer to. Where this episode, where did you want to center on him with this girlfriend? And uh, yeah. we heard, you can say who this woman is, because I'm sure you must have read who this Catherine Storer is, or what do we know about her, besides what you just saw? Well, I, I, I was interested in what drives a person to spend their life alone, and, mm -hmm. and to live this, this monastic life. And that is not, uh, it's not an interesting decision unless we get to see him make the decision. So that's why I put her in the plays, because I, and I read a couple of places, a couple of, uh, a couple of people have written about her and kind of wondered about her and what she meant to him, and uh, it's possible he was close with her father yeah. and that he had given uh, Newton several books. Uh, there's an account of Newton beating up her, uh, Catherine's brother yeah. um, somewhere, very brief mention of that. Um, so, so she's somebody who seemed important, at least. 
Um, but she's really there uh, in part so we can see the weight of the decision he's made because it, it, to choose to, to be alone and, uh, uh, and to devote yourself so exclusively to the studies, uh, it's, it's, I needed to make that visible. I needed to make that choice visible. The, the reason a little bit I asked that question is because, and perhaps you want to comment on that, one of the things that makes Newton stand out of other scientists, not only that he was a great scientist or the greatest scientist, as many people will say, was the, per the first person who became a, a celebrity for being a scientist. Before that, scientists were not people that were known to the big world. <coughs> And Newton became, you know, in old age, and particularly when he went to Parliament, etc., the sort of iconic figure. And I always wondered, you know, he died at very old age, he died at 85, and then two, three years later after he died, this woman appeared, Catherine, saying, oh yeah, we were, he was my boyfriend when we were 15, this was 70 years ago. You know, it always sounded to me like, all these women that appeared after Elvis died and say, oh, yeah, of course he was my... Yeah, we had something back when... You know, she was saying that 70 years approximately after the fact. Who's going to, to, to go and verify that in two generations after? So it was interesting to me because also this means it, it's interesting what Newton became. So he, in some sense changed the role and the image of what scientist is before him. I mean, probably you will cite examples of people who were famous as scientists, but in the scale of Newton, I believe there is nothing like it. So he invented, in some sense, the role of a scientist as we all know it, beyond the scientists. Well, one thing that's very hard, actually, as historians, is that Newton, at the end of his life, was powerful enough to manage his image. And then the people who produced the documentation, which we still depend upon, were also very careful about its image, and they put it to lots of different uses. They were attempting to fashion some vision of what it was to be a transcendent scientific genius. And um, this was a relatively sort of new way of thinking. It was not only a celebrity, but a vision of what it meant for an individual to have the kind of access that he, that he did, and it was increasingly, and, the, and, and, and it became increasingly secularized. So the documents we have, the <coughs> biographies, are written in the context of attempt, a, a, attempting to, to control this image. So it's actually very challenging for us as historians to document certain things he said, mm -hmm. um, because his family and others were so committed. And it changes, sort of, uh, people have uh, studied very carefully Newton's reputation, his character, his significance changes almost decade by decade over the next few centuries. Um, and yeah, it's one of the things I find interesting is that once a generation, someone writes a new, typically an Englishman, writes a new biography of Newton in which Newton then takes on that age's great characteristics. Right? So um, when the Victorians get their hands on him, Newton becomes a middle-class, respectable gentleman who loved children and had a dog we played with. Um, so, like, and you can see these, like, paintings of, of 
Newton saying that he got thinking about the rainbow because he was playing with his nephew, and his nephew had you know bubbles he was playing with, and and it's it's an effort to domesticate Newton for the Victorian age, so he's a recognizable person instead of this crazy heretical monk, right? That was not okay for the Victorians. Um, and then you know, in the twentieth century, professional scientists reimagined Newton as a complete secular positivist. Um, who anticipated all the things that they wanted to find yeah. as well. And we see again all his if, uh, religious speculations. and um, Yeah, so everybody wants to own Newton, is what I find over time. Yeah, and, and, it's, and interestingly, because his image was so tightly managed early, uh, in order to sort of remove his past, it's fairly easy to claim Newton as your own, because... His past is kind of ambiguous and unclear. So whatever persuasion you want Newton to have, go start your webpage. Yeah. <laughs> Newton is secular humanist. Um, whatever you need. We'll be right back with part two of the panel discussion following the performance of Isaac's Eye running in New York City through March 10th.